something a little bit different today, something a little bit great. Uh, we are back in the Dirty Glass podcast, the crossover podcast between Dirty Linen and Over a Glass with Shantae Whale. Welcome, Shantae. <laughs> Thanks for having me, Danny. Lovely to be here to chat to you. Well, thank you for having me as well, because we're going to put this out across both shows, um, which is super exciting. Um, I love chatting to you about wine. Uh, in fact, I have been known to take photos of wine lists and send them to you for advice in the moment. Uh, tell us about what you've been up to recently. Oh, it's, it's all about wine at the moment. This is like peak time for wine reviews, um, wine writing, everybody's starting to think about what they're going to drink in their festivities and it's a really good time for wine shows to be kicking off. So I've been doing a fair bit of wine judging around the country, which is always fun. I just got back from Margaret River, which is one of my favourite places in the world. Um, yeah, so it's kind of just wine-centric at the moment. Um, I should tell people if they don't already know that you chat about wine shows in the latest Deep in the Weeds newsletter. So we will put a link to that in the show notes if you're not already subscribed. Uh, I learned so much from yeah your, your rundown. Um, tell the listeners, you know, what wine show life is all about and the process of judging wines. Yeah, it's a cool little process and it's one that actually people ask about because I suppose unless you do it, you don't really get an insight into it. Basically, you know, it goes back to the good old agricultural days of getting a product and, and, and improving the quality where, you know, wines are lined up and people volunteer by sending their wines in at a fee. And then they're kind of judged off all blind like, through great tasters um, in the country, be that winemakers, viticulturalists, sommeliers, um, wine writers. And so it's a kind of process where it's kind of like a bit of a marathon in that you do see quite a lot of wines. Back in the day, it was 400x amounts in a day. They've pulled it right back now because they know that we're not crazy. But you basically go in, you spend a, a week or a few days with some amazing peers. You judge wine all day from about 8.30 till about six o'clock at night. And then you sit down and have a meal and kind of talk about it. But it, this goes from, you know, some of the smaller wine regions. Um, so perhaps like somewhere like Canberra or, you know, Langhorn Creek, all the way up to um, national shows and also uh, state shows. So there's a whole range, but it, it's it's fascinating. You get a real insight into what's happening to the people that kind of run the committees and, um, and, and to what the kind of vintage conditions are like and what's been happening. So it's fascinating. It's usually a volunteer um, kind of position, but I get so much out of it and I really look forward. It's kind of a catch up for me with some of my best mates because, you know, you, you end up seeing great winemakers and you get to have a really nice social kind of event around it too. Wow, it sounds amazing. I bet those spittoons get a good workout with so, such long days and so many wines. Do you do you get a sense, I mean, how do you, is there consensus and, and do you even know if there is because you're, you're tasting blind and I assume you're scoring privately? Mm. Like, do you reckon uh, different wine judges have, could have very divergent opinions? Definitely. And there's heaps of discussion. So you actually, you are scoring and writing notes. 
but then the panel of judges, which goes from a panel chair to senior judges all the way to associate judges, and they move around um, with each uh, day, you actually come together and you have a look at where you've kind of uh, voted the wine, what score you've given it and why, and that's all discussed. And then the top wines are actually pulled back and they're tried again blind and you kind of find the top wines. But there's so much discussion from people like style judges like myself as a wine writer and and sommelier who says you know like this wine it's so delicious and I could drink it and I could sell it to a winemaker that goes "Mm, it's actually faulty it's they've done this wrong or they've done that and you've got these two very differing opinions of and that's what's great because the discussion is about okay well we need to find quality wine but we also it's nice to see wines that can have a little bit of funk or a little bit of um, challenge about them but that are they're selling really well on the market. So lots and lots of heated discussion at times. <laughs> wow, it's so interesting because I suppose the sense I'm getting from you is that there are lines that you can draw here and there, but there perhaps is not as much right or wrong as you might think. Yeah, and everyone, like you said, it's so personal. So everyone's got different styles. Someone might really like the kind of elegant, ethereal, very kind of pretty line of Chardonnay and somebody else wants like lots of bang for their bucks, lots of oak and lots of richness and a little bit of toast, but it's all got to still be a balanced wine and it's still got to be a quality wine. So um, it's about kind of tuning into that. And the more you judge, the better you get. I remember at the start, I would taste each wine about four or five times because I was like, oh, I'm not sure. I'm not sure. These days I taste it once. It goes in the mouth once and out and I've made my decision, but usually based off, you know, that very, very first sip. That is amazing. And I see quite a bit of synergy between how I think about restaurants. Um, And I should also say in our newsletter, have you subscribed yet? (laughs) I talk about some of the ins and outs of of reviewing restaurants and some of the questions that I ask myself. But I think, you know, my my first question with a restaurant is, what is the restaurant's project and does it succeed on its own terms? It's less about my personal taste so it's less about whether I want that oaky chardonnay or whatever it's um it's more about you know is 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 the restaurant trying to be you know the number one kebab place in its suburb and does it succeed on its own terms it would be silly to judge that sort of place on you know whether it had white tablecloths so um I feel like maybe that's it's a bit similar with wines it's like you try to set some of your personal preferences aside and just look at you know whether the the, the wine stacks up um against its own set of criteria before you go and do a restaurant review do they give you a brief especially with new restaurants of kind of um, what they're trying to achieve and do they give you a parameter or do you just go in completely blind and just evaluate based on what you're seeing and hearing well, I mean, I guess unlike a wine show, they haven't sent in their restaurant, so they don't know that I'm coming. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I just turn up. I've booked under a different name. Um, and sometimes I do have a lot of information. I mean, I must have some information because I've chosen to go there. There are thousands of places you could go. Why am I going to any particular place? So there must be some reason. So that could be through information that the restaurant sent me, whether that's directly or through uh, through a PR agency. Um, it could be stuff I've seen on social media. It could be things that a friend has told me. It could have been, I don't know, something that caught my eye as I was walking or driving past. And then I've gone and looked at their website and you know looked at their menu. Um, but yeah, I mean, a restaurant never briefs me as such. Um, and it's, it's, it's more about what I see at the time. It's like, because I think, I feel like anyone should be able to walk into a restaurant and 
understand its intention. Um, it should at least become clear as the meal progresses that, you know, this is this is what the restaurant is trying to do. It's, it's trying to be, you know, a, a, it's trying to express like some regional Italian cuisine and it's doing that because of a family connection. Like that shouldn't remain mysterious throughout a meal. I think it should um, be revealed. And I think the restaurants that have the strongest through line are often the ones that, um, yeah, I rank the highest because they just inhabit themselves in in a really clear way. Mm. I suppose it's like having a good story, isn't it? Like it's got to have good characters. It's got to have a place that it's going and it's it's got to be well written. Like it must have all these different elements that make up something that you come away with feeling like you really enjoyed, but you, you understand it too. There was a story that you understood. Yeah, totally. But it could take all kinds of different forms. Like it could be a limerick and it could be a saga. It could be um, a mystery novel or a thriller. Um, So I guess there are all kinds of, yeah, there are different types of stories. Um, But yeah, it should be cogent. I guess that's that's the the main thing that I'm looking for. So cool. I mean, I'd love to just, yeah, be a fly on the wall and listen to what you're thinking about when you're doing reviews like that. I know you don't give that away, but it'd be fascinating to hear what's going through your brain. Have you had any good drinking experiences lately at any restaurants? I mean, what, what's what's exciting you at the moment? Yeah, definitely. Um, uh, yeah, I feel like I've been really enjoying the what's in the glass as well as what's on the plate recently and very fresh in my mind because I was there just last night is Movida Original. Um, so that restaurant in Hosier Lane in Melbourne is about to celebrate 20 years in that location, which is Huge. bloody amazing and definitely worth celebrating. Uh, so yeah, they. I had a glass of Spanish sparkling to start um, and then followed up with some wines that you recommended <laughs> after I sent you the wine list. What did you think of the Movedo Wines by the Glass selection? Uh, it's really well, um, really well formed in that there's a uh, an ode to what Spain does really well using some of their indigenous varieties, but it's also um, a list that anybody could walk in not knowing anything about wine and be able to find something that they recognize and enjoy as well. So I think that's kind of hard because we know some of the kind of traditional Spanish varieties, but there's some really unusual things that that Spain does well and perhaps we don't see here as much. So some of the kind of the wines that are under Coravan perhaps may not be you know, they may be a little bit more expensive and it might be a wine that maybe needs a little bit more um, perhaps talking through if you go to order them. But there's so much on that list that you can just get total pleasure in and find something delicious to drink alongside an array of food. I mean, there's so many different flavors in Spanish food. So you've got a big challenge there with, you know, salt cod and anchovies and great tomatoes and rich sauces. You've got to kind of you've got to have a, a list that offers a lot. So I think they've done a great job. Yeah. So the sparkling that I started with, so uh, um, is the variety, so is it Pregado or Zarelgio? Zarelgio, <laughs> yeah. Paralada. Zarello. Zarello. And to be honest, I probably say those badly as well. <laughs> yeah, I'm definitely saying it badly. But um, so I had some of the sparkling with the 36-month um, aged hamon, which was oh. so creamy and just sort of 
dense but ethereal at the same time, sliced so thinly with this beautiful creamy fat. And I feel like that the sort of the bubbles and the the toastiness of, the, of that um, – the Zarello, is that right? Is that yep. the variety? Is that what I was drinking? Yeah. Yep, yep, <laughs> so yep. I feel like that was really nice. Um, yeah, that was really delicious. Uh, and um, then another one that really stood out was the Meranzeo. Is that how you say it? Yep, Meranzeo, yep. Yeah. Um, tell me about that wine. That's a red. So interesting because you're kind of going over to Galicia. Firstly, just on a point of um, the wine that you were talking about, the Spanish cava, essentially, which is made from their indigenous uh, three indigenous varieties. A lot of I think a lot of time it's kind of passed over, which is unusual because Spanish cava is made in the same traditional way as what. Um, champagne is made and it's from these incredible varieties so it, it's a, a drink that's got really high quality and like you said some of those varieties um with slightly thicker skins can give you some of those kind of nutty nuances as well so such a good um drink especially with ham on like 36 month it's that beautiful nutty um that flavor that you get from the, the fat that is so good i mean ham on's my jam so i mean i'm hungry just thinking about that <laughs> And the other wine is my jam. Yes, <laughs> it, it is. The other wine you're talking about is the Maranzao from Algera Risco, which is actually a Mencia, which is a, a beautiful variety that comes from Ribera Sacra. And that's in kind of the, heading towards kind of green Spain where it's beautiful and hilly. And, and another indigenous variety that has kind of thinner, thinner skins, medium kind of skins. It can have the perfume of some of the most beautiful Pinot Noirs and Nebbiolos in those lovely kind of rose and violet kind of character, but it can have some nice gritty tannins. We're actually seeing it planted in Australia quite a bit at the moment in the Adelaide Hills and a little bit um, in McLaren Vale, but it's a variety that ages quite well, not maybe in the Cabernet realms, but it can age, you know, quite well in the medium to longish term cellaring um, and it can be really light and delicate and it can also be a bit grungy and tar and and kind of gravelly as well so it's a, a variety that does a lot of that can do a lot of different things but somewhere like the hilly Adelaide Hills where you've got lots of pockets of different areas it's um, it's doing really well and I just think that that's a great white red wine to drink for a lot of different foods which is exactly why I suggested I was like you've got paella there you've got rabbit you've got a bit of sausage there's that's got good acidity um, and it's also got um, a bit of perfume as well. Shante, there are also quite a lot of Australian producers on that list doing European varietals, not necessarily Spanish. And there's one winemaker that I always take note of when I see on a wine list. And I'd love to know what you think of them queerly um, down on the Mornington Peninsula. Tell me a little bit about queerly, what you know about um, about that label. Yeah, they've they're kind of pushing the boat out. Queerly wines. Um, I came across them. I think Babendum represents them, and Mornington, you know, has gone from strength to strength. So Queerly wines are, are looking at a few different. They do some great Pinot Gris and some beautiful Pinot Noir and Chardonnay, which we um, see from the Mornington being a strength, but. Uh, Kevin is also doing some fantastic skin contact wines and using things like amphora um, and cement and doing some unusual kind of more textural 
focused wines. And I suppose that's kind of the hit word, that and sustainable at the moment, texture and sustainable. But I think it's a new way of thinking, how do we create exciting wines in Australia? We have such amazing fruit. We have beautiful sunlight. Um, We have excellent cool climate areas like the Mornington because of those lovely cool breezes that come through from the Bass Strait. So we can produce a lot of amazing wines, but texture is this other factor that I think everyone's kind of focusing in on and saying like, what else? How do we get another dimension into our wines? We've got delicious wines, but how do we get more thought provoking um, wines that kind of stand the test of time and 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 something like the use of skins just um starts to have a, a phenolic grip to the wines it also kind of changes the way acid and and tannin interplay on on your palate so they're doing lots of really exciting things with things like Ferrigliano, moscato chardonnay reasoning um and and kind of making some of the varieties like musket and things like that that maybe we sometimes look over into some really exciting stuff so great great winery to to highlight really well Shante, it's coming into some warmer weather um what do you reckon is going to be huge over summer oh huge that's always a tough one tequila um <laughs> i was well, <Yes>. thinking <laughs> I mean, always, it should always be huge. <laughs> but um, I was thinking the other day about um, not Christmas because we're not even there yet. I was thinking a bit about what, like Halloween and because I'm like a mum these days and I'm going to hand out some candy, which I get a lot of joy out of doing because I used to love, love trick-or-treating. <laughs> I was thinking about like, oh, what are good drinks that are kind of family friendly because I don't know. I mean, they're gone at the days of going out and having long lunches and then coming home and and having a long nap. So I was kind of thinking like, I wonder what, what are good drinks to serve at family events and things like, you know, I've got my mum, my mum's birthdays on, on Halloween. I was like, what, what can I kind of serve? But you know, that's not, everyone's going to get sloshed. And I thought a bit about serving piquette, which is an, a word that we're hearing a lot more. I'm not sure if you're familiar with Yes, tell me. So, Biquette is a a kind of old-fashioned French winemaking drink. I'd go as far to say is don't think of it as a wine and think of it as a beverage. Biquette um, translates in France to kind of prickle. And it was a way – it's kind of the drink of the workers in the vineyard. It was a way of using um, some of the byproducts of wine and making the most out of it. So, essentially, it's taking kind of the pomace of – of the the winemaking process so like the skins and the seeds and the pulp and then steeping it in water rehydrating it and then that often kicks off like a second ferment and so it's naturally low in alcohol it has a different turbidity and viscosity on the palate um and almost has a sour element to it as well so i'd kind of think about it in the realms of kombucha meats sour beer meets a spritz in the way that the the way that you kind of drink it or maybe you could align it to the 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 feeling of kind of how people drink seltzers these days I suppose but it's kind of a nice ode to a history of 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 drinks and it's it's beneficial for the for winemakers to not just use those pomace and things as fertilizer or, or but to actually to make a second kind of use out of them so I think that that's kind of cool we're seeing a lot more people making piquettes. Um, so I think that might be something I'll serve that I thought, you know, nobody's going to be too tipsy. Everybody can drive home, but we can still have a little cheers um, 
the adults can while we hand out all this sugar and hop up all the kids before they go home and have to be put to bed. (laughs) I love that, Shante. And I think it so ties into uh, trends in food where people are always looking at, you know, second and third uses out of a product, whether it's, you know, the the vegetable trimmings that are, you know, fermented or turned into a pickle um, or, you know, uh, trimmings, meat trimmings that are used in something else as well. So I feel like it's very aligned um, with, yeah, things that are happening on food menus, which is awesome. In terms of like... What are you seeing? Is there like a trend that's happening at the moment that you're loving? But you must see so many different things that come, that go, that people are talking about. And and in something like that, like Piquette, which people are seeing a lot of, but still I know that if I brought up my friends, I'd be like, what is that? Are you seeing anything like that in the restaurant world at the moment? I definitely think um, pickling and fermenting and preserving is still growing I think it was a bit of a quirky outlier thing to do you know a few years ago but I think now especially with food costs increasing all the time and and all costs increasing all the time you just can't run a menu um you can just can't run a successful restaurant if you're putting too much stuff in the bin if you're not making the most of every single ingredient that comes through the door so I think there's that and I I think it's um it's a really nice way to uh increase creativity interest and skills in the kitchen um you know a lot of restaurants perhaps don't have the the resources um or the time to train staff in things like whole animal butchery or, you know, fish butchery and those kinds of things. There's a lot of portioned food coming into restaurants. But I think there are still ways of, um, yeah, improving the bottom line and keeping people engaged and putting interesting things on the plate uh, when, yeah, they're looking at some of those, I guess, traditional preparations, but but perhaps used in different ways. Mm. Oh, I just – and I I love pickles. I mean, I I think that, like, if – I've I've never really I've done a couple of pickles myself but I just like if someone put pickled cauliflower on a plate for me I'm just in heaven yes and I instantly think of some pickled cauliflower that somebody did put on a plate for me recently Um, I was at a really cute wine bar called Sardinas in Reservoir in Melbourne Um, and actually let's just finish with a little chat about wine on tap because that's Mm. what they do there Um, and I think you know, different ways of serving or I guess transporting wine seem to be having a moment. It's definitely something that I'm seeing more more wine on tap, um, and it's not shit. It's not um, like the, the the dregs from the bottom of the vat. Um, it's wine that's um, proudly transported in kegs. I guess it's um, yeah, it's it's more sustainable. Um, people are buying it in refillable bottles, taking it home, and coming back for something else. I think it's um, yeah, it's it's really nice. Is is that something that you see as gaining more and more traction, Shante? I think so because I think we need to keep thinking about you know our imprint and and glass bottles and we need to think about how we can use and and serve wine where we're not having such kind of um you know a carbon carbon imprint so i think something like and you know back in the day we used to have problems with like beer taps and microbial issues that's all being cleaned up these days you know the 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 way that we approach sterilization and, and protecting the wine under different gases and things so these days i think that you know that's not an issue and therefore we can have better quality wines at something 
like on tap. So I think that that's really exciting. And, and um, you know, these days you can kind of pop them straight into kind of barrels and things like that. So you're not even having to create whole new um, storage facilities for it. So it, it's almost like straight from cellar door, from barrel into tap. That's pretty exciting. Yeah, it is really exciting. And again, I think, you know, taps into a lot of that sort of farm to plate um, dining that, that people love and uh, I guess innovators like Two Hands, the seafood distributor that, you know, is literally has those two hands, the fisher, the, the fisher and then to the, to the chef. So I think that that sort of direct relationship with producers is, is really exciting in all kinds of arenas. Um, Shante, I could talk to you all day and we do need to sit in a restaurant so that you can be inside my head and I can be inside yours. So let's make sure we do that soon. Get into the same city and make it happen. Um, But yeah, thank you so much for chatting today, sharing your expertise. It is always so good to catch up on Dirty Glass. I love that. And you know, I... Dirty glass is just the the name. It just flows, but it gives me a bit of anxiety because I hate a dirty glass. But I'm glad that this chat <laughs> is always so enjoyable. <laughs> Thanks so much for having me, Danny. <laughs> Thanks, Shante. This is Dirty Linen, and I'm Danny Vallant. We air the issues that the hospitality industry finds hard to talk about, hearing from different people with unique perspectives. We want to hear from you as well. If you have something that needs to be said about a topic, get in touch so we can include your perspective. Contact us at dirtylinen at deepintheweeds.com.au or hit us up on Insta at Dirty Linen Podcast. We can't wait to hear from you. This.